Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 28 of Inside AgriTurf. Now, the golf course market has always been an important sector for the agriturf machinery industry. Sophisticated equipment ensures that courses are kept in pristine condition both for the players and for television cameras. Like pretty well every sport, golf has been subject to a shutout during the pandemic. But on the eve of it all opening up again, big questions arise. How will golf course budgets be affected? Could this result in a reduction in green staff? Will there be a stampede of players when restrictions are lifted? And how will clubs manage this surge? And how will green staff cope when course maintenance regimes might be restricted as a result of this surge? To answer these and many other issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Croxton, the CEO of Bigger, the British and International Golf Greenkeepers Association. So Jim, many thanks for joining me. Um, before we get on to these weighty issues... You have announced that Bigger is to stage a festival of turf in June. So how are arrangements for the event progressing? Well, I can, Chris. In fact, I can give you what what is probably a world exclusive because today we've uh, announced that we are not just carrying on with the Festival of Turf, but we have rearranged the dates for the 21st and the 22nd of July 2021. Still at the same venue, which is the Warwickshire Event Centre, which is on the Foss Way down in the Midlands. Yes. Um, we had been looking to hold this event in early June, and we were really, really happy with how it was going. The, the, the sort of response from exhibitors and from our membership has been really positive. But the recent government announcements on the, on the stages of the, of the roadmap have given us an opportunity, we think, to use the same kind of period of the year, the summer months, at a time when it looks as though social uh, restrictions will be removed. We can have the kind of event we wanted to have, which... You know, we, we will obey absolutely any any restrictions at the time and we'll be sensitive to the COVID situation. We won't be out of the woods completely by then. But I know that, um, and, the, and the majority of the event is outdoors, I know that people are looking forward to kind of, you know, hopefully shaking hands, maybe fist bumping, uh, <laughs> maybe stood around chatting and they can see each other's smiles and frowns. Um, Wouldn't that be bliss? <laughs> well, we hope so. And, and and that is one of the reasons for holding the event. We, 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 we wanted... It's been a long time since we were together. In fact, as an industry, we were probably last together in Harrogate in January 2020, which is already 14 months ago. And by the mm. time we get to July, it'll be 18 months um, away. And and I would say normally, you know, I'm bumping into you two or three times a year. I'm bumping into our audience of visitors and exhibitors six times a year mm. at various events of different kinds. So to go that long without without any contact to me is a, is a problem. And I, I wanted to try and get something done this summer because both both elements of our of our constituents if you like were, were calling for it the exhibitors were asking us is there something we can do and our visitors were saying when are we going to be able to get together again when are we going to be able to to see each other to to chew the fat and to share war stories uh, but also to, to to learn and progress which is what people do at these events i always say my my cliche is is you know you arrive with problems at these events and you leave with solutions mm-hmm. and and we think there's a real opportunity to do this in july um, it's going to be a two-day event. It's it's at a, a little event centre, which is a really cool place. It's got an indoor hall, which is really nice and spacious, and then that leads straight into an outdoor area. Um, we've called it Festival of Turf to try and get that sort of summery vibe. Um, it isn't going to be Glastonbury. Um, 
both both the, the the good aspects of that and the bad, I guess. We probably will have some music. We might well have a little bit of music in the. In That's the, the light the relief that you have advertised. <laughs> yeah, we we think we will we'll, we'll, we'll when we get to around four o'clock on the first day, we're going to kind of. Uh, I haven't got any hair to let down, but but those of us that have will will let a little bit of hair down, a little bit of background music, and and hopefully a, a social event for an hour or two, just to get um, that feeling that the other thing we've missed from from say not having BTME, which is that social side of the event. But the the plan for the event is two days of of customer engagement and the industry coming together. Uh, and uh, is there a golf course attached adjacent to the event centre? No, there isn't. No, it's um, it's a greenfield site. It, it was once a farm. Um, they've got parking for 2,000 vehicles. They've got loads and loads of turf. Um, they're hoping that um, the impact of our event may even improve that turf because we're going to sure. <laughs> hopefully have the opportunity for some of our exhibitors to show their wares and actually demonstrate those things. Um, funny enough, their normal um, team of mowers are um, are sheep. Um, <laughs> they, they do have real mowers as well. But when we were, first visited it, the, um, the the guy that owns the place said, "You'll see that my uh, greenkeeping team is out there right now." And I was quite surprised to see six white fluffy things. Um, but no, it's not a, it's not a turf facility as such, but it is a turf site. And, and what sort of interest uh, up to now have you had from exhibitors and also from your members? Uh, then, uh, Jim. Well. You know, really positive. I think um, first of all, we um, we we put out an intent process as opposed to a booking form because we recognised that people probably weren't going to write checks back in January when we first, well, <clears throat> December when we announced the event and, and January when we really pushed it. But we've had thirty plus exhibitors commit with their intent process, and, and we're now at the point of just confirming those. Um, we're selling plots um, on average. They're in they're in sort of five meter blocks, so five by fives up to ten by tens and fifteen by tens. And we've we've got about fifteen of the larger companies with the ten by ten slots taken. Some larger ones than that. So that and it'll have that feel that we've all been to the sort of the outdoor shows back in the day. And I'd include um, Soltex at Windsor in that 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 lovely feel where it's nice and open and airy and light. And so I think there'll be quite a lot of machinery on show, but I'm also really pleased that the, the fertilizer guys and the immunity supplies guys have, have come on board as well. Pretty much all of the, the big names that you would associate with Bigger are all confirmed. And a couple um, said to us back in the early part of the year that they were that their answer for now was no, but purely because of COVID. Um, so, you know, we, we're comfortable if they don't come. and we, we, we very much don't believe anybody has to be there. Um, but if they feel that they now that the circumstances have changed, then then we'll welcome them with open arms. Um, and as, as a sorry, as, as a two day event, then uh, Jim, uh, what's the accommodation stock uh, like around the Warwickshire uh, event centre? Ordinarily, uh, it's pretty good. Leamington and Warwick are both on the doorstep, and there's lots of hotels. Um, I'm 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 not terribly concerned. I'm 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 most concerned probably for exhibitors who will need to stay overnight or those that, that that travel a distance. There's certainly enough for that. But what we do know is that with the current prohibition on overseas travel, uh, this is not um, specifically holiday period. But we know that uh, that the hotels and um, and self self catering places are pretty busy. We we've got a bunch of stock on hold through a, a concierge company. Uh, that we hope will will be able to supply what we need for exhibitors and visitors. I don't anticipate a large amount of visitors staying overnight. I think some will because I think yeah. they'll want to go and socialise in the evening and, and join us in that side of things. And we had a we had a conference uh, back in January. We, we we replicated our continuous learning experience online. Uh, really exciting challenge for us and and a, and a very challenging challenge as well. But the number one topic of discussion in all the chat rooms was, was around the Festival of Turf. Our members had seen it. They were, they were keen to hear more about it. They want to get it in their diary. So I think we'll get a good turnout. 
I, I think it's a great. Uh, I think it's a great title for a start. It it it, it does what it says on the tin uh, to a certain extent. Um, is it likely to be any public interest in it? Um, there could be. We we have a small public um, interest at Harrogate. Local local Harrogateians who are, are interested in their. Uh, their own gardens or whatever will come down and look or people that are golfers that are keen to see and I imagine we'll get some local interest uh, around the area we're not promoting it heavily publicly but no. um, it will it will appear it's on the it will be on the website of the venue and those kind of things um, at, at one point when it looked like we'd have to have a restricted uh, number of people there it would still have been quite a decent number we would still have been over 2,000 um, we would have been probably restricting it to turf professionals only and the associated trades um, we're now at a capacity of over 4,000. Um, I don't think we ever have more than 4,000 visitors in the hall at BTME at any one time. So I think anybody who comes is very welcome. Sure, sure. And uh, what are your ambitions for the event? I mean, uh, uh, trusting that it will be a successful and, and meet or even exceed your expectations. Will this alter your your thinking for future events and i'm thinking obviously of uh, your regular event at harrogate do, do you see perhaps i mean obviously it's early days because you don't know how this one's going to go uh, but do you see them running in tandem maybe alternate years or has it been in discussion when we first conceived of the event it was conceived as a one-off you know, we, we've both been in business a while now, Chris. You you often, when you when you do something, you put some effort in. You think, wouldn't it be nice if it if it had some legs? But we don't mind if it doesn't. Having said which, over the last two or three years, and I, I say pre-COVID, I would say this: a number of our exhibitors, some of the ones that are that are very keen on kind of the outdoor demonstration process, have asked us about: is there something we could do in a coordinated way? Because what happens now in our industry, particularly in greenkeeping, is there are hundreds, literally hundreds of demo events of different types taking place up and down the country. And they work and they're fine, but it's pretty onerous on, on the trade to do that. They need that demo fleet about, they need a lot of staffing. And we've been asked by a few of the companies if there was something that they could do that really got their machinery, generally it's the machinery guys that have, that have focused on this, but got their stuff out in front of a large audience in the summer, they'd consider it. So I think... Our first ambition is to, is to run a successful event, an enjoyable event for all, all concerned. Um, I'd like it to wipe its feet and not cost us too much money, but we haven't budgeted for it to be a, it's not a big earner. It's not done for those reasons for us. But but uh, where we are now, I think we're in pretty good shape for that. If it if it does touch um, the sort of the audience, I, I've, I've wondered for a while if there's an opportunity for us to take something around the country a bit more than we do because we mm-hmm. you know we our event is in Harrogate every year a lot of events move around ours has been in Harrogate every year since 1989 and I hopefully will carry on in that in that location for a few more years to come so we wouldn't be against the idea but it would need to be effectively audience-led on both sides it needs to work well look that's very interesting news Jim and uh, I wish you well in your build-up and your planning for the uh, event if we might now turn to uh, golf in general and greenkeeping in, in particular this has been a tough time for golf courses as it has been for all parts of society of course so has there been many course closures um, is the golf course stock uh, will it reduce significantly because of covid do, do, do you have any information on that not detailed, but but certainly anecdotally, there has been a little bit of both. So funny enough, there's been some rebound and there have been some recent examples of courses that did close, reopening because they believe that the upturn in golfing participation that started in the middle of May last year when the golf courses opened 
means that they're now viable. So, and, and those are mainly either municipal-type golf courses or uh, some privately-owned proprietary courses that were relatively at the, at the lower end of the, sort of the green fee range. There have been some closures. There haven't been as many as you might think, albeit I think our industry has heavily, I don't think this, I know our industry has heavily utilised the furlough scheme. So we've done three or four surveys over the last 12 months at the height of the sort of lockdown back in, in I guess, April, May last year. There were only on average less than two greenkeepers working per golf course in the country, and you'd normally have six. Mm -hmm. So, you know, two thirds of the workforce plus was furloughed. We did a survey only a couple of weeks ago, um, which revealed that, that the average club still has three members of staff furloughed, albeit the furlough scheme is now flexible. So I think what that often means is that people are doing part-time or, or, or alternate weeks, etc. Um, but even at the kind of the peak of last year, most clubs maintained some kind of furlough presence, which meant that they've had income coming in from the government and, and, and costs afraid. So we... I think we're going to see the real impact of this in terms of closures next winter. And I think there'll be some clubs that muddle through this year based on the fact that <clears throat> courses will be busy for the rest of this this summer and spring, summer and autumn. And then they'll actually be looking and right, all the government benefits have now gone. Furlough ends is, I mean, we, we heard yesterday, uh, we heard the other day, September, I think, that that's going to finish. The grants will be used up and I think we'll lose a few then. I think received wisdom is that we're probably still slightly oversupplied on golf courses. It's not a huge number, but I think there are still plenty of markets where there are more than we need. And when the uh, furlough scheme ends, do you think that that will have uh, an impact on the number of greenkeepers that are employed at clubs? I mean, uh, I'm not sure, Jim, if you take an average, if there is such a thing as an average golf course with an 18, one 18 hole course, how many green staff are generally uh, employed? If you take out the, the real sort of lower end of that, the sort of the, the nine holers um, and the courses with very low budgets, which which skew the data. And then if you also take out the, the very high ones, because, you know, clubs that have got 60 green staff for two courses make a big difference. Five and a half to six is is pretty much the sort of the sweet spot yeah. um, for the industry. The recent uh, survey we showed showed that um, the number was still pretty much there. We know that during last year, a lot of clubs didn't fill natural wastage. So, you know, people moving on, people retiring, they tended to just stick with the smaller team. But we've had a very busy few weeks on recruitment adverts, including people, you know, advertising for, for regular greenkeepers rather than just managerial positions. So I, I'm reasonably optimistic that the actual overall number hasn't decreased substantially. I think we'll see a small decrease, but I, I don't think it will be as much as, for example, 10%. One kind of outcome of the pandemic and the fact that golf courses got so busy was that Golfers have made it very clear that the reason they play golf is for the golf course. Um, yes. And you therefore need staff to, to, to make that happen. It hasn't been a great year for, for pro shops and for food and beverage operations and whatever else. But from my perspective, I think it's been a little bit of a, of a correction for the golf industry to make sure they do focus that, that without a golf course, there's no golf business. Um, so I think greenkeepers' jobs are by no means safe. You know, if, if the economy downturns, then, then we'll be hit. But it's not as bad as we feared a year ago. And, and of course, uh, golf courses, unlike some sports facilities, need constant maintenance to ensure their long-term course quality. And uh, the lack of course quality, I'm always told, uh, can severely uh, affect membership. So it's in the club's interest to make make sure that the clubs, uh, the courses are maintained uh, well. Um, and obviously, 
money is going to be a big issue with a lot of clubs. Do you get any sense also of um, the impact on course uh, club, clubs' budgets for the coming year? Yeah, uh, one of the things we recently surveyed was um, was budget expectations, and something like. 40% of our members felt their budget would decline by up to uh, sort of between 10 and 12%. So not catastrophic. Um, no. And that means that the majority aren't seeing a decrease in budget. But that's that's a fair chunk gone. A, a lot of that may just be that they were running with six staff and they're going to run with five. I mm-hmm. mean, that makes a you know, headcount is, is pretty much the biggest individual cost in a, in a greenkeeper's budget. So if you if you're, for example, no longer going to hire your summer seasonal, that would that would see you having a reasonable chunk of budget reduced. There was a reasonably, I think, a pretty encouraging um, outcome in the budget just passed um, this thing they call the super deduction, which I didn't fully understand. But I think it's got to be great news for the machinery industry because it's effectively a a massive incentive to invest in capital machinery if if it's if it um, uh, is approved as such in terms of the machinery that that the, the, the scheme is aimed at. I know from speaking to a lot of our uh, clients that a lot of clubs uh, delayed their big capex spending that they had in mind for 2020, but most will be looking to probably do something in 2021. So that could be really positive for the for the turf machinery industry. I think a lot of clubs could be pretty positive. And speaking recently to some of our clients, that they've had a really strong start to the year, and this this hopefully will will be positive for that. Uh, and, and of course, as bigger uh, covering the whole of the UK, you've had a situation where golf is being played in, in some of the uh, devolved nations uh, in Scotland. It's, uh, courses have been opened, I, I believe. But I guess a lot of that has been uh, a lot of their activity has been hampered by the weather recently. Yeah, we had a funny we had a, a social team meeting last night and, and, and had a uh, it was cheese and wine last night, which was an odd odd thing for me to do but we gave it a go and and my colleague that looks after Scotland said that he'd been because he was off uh that he'd spent the day playing golf and we were all a bit freaked out because you know living in England yes I I almost thought we'd been breaking the law but of course courses are allowed to be open in Scotland which is great news for the for the the Scottish golfer it hasn't been great news for some Scottish greenkeepers because frankly a lot of courses over the last two or three months with with a lot of wet weather could have done with a rest and in fact in the northwest of England, where I live, I mean, a lot of clubs would have wouldn't have been open even were they allowed to be through January and February. One thing we have definitely learned from this last twelve months is that when golf courses are given a rest, it's hugely beneficial. And I think a message that we'll be pushing a lot the next few weeks, months, and into the year will be that clubs need to manage their yield severely to make sure they don't. I can't remember what the quite cliche is, but but kill the golden calf or the golden goose or whatever it may be. Because if they overplay the golf courses and damage them, then you're right. You you mentioned earlier on, people do vote with their feet in terms of membership. They do go away when golf course condition deteriorates. And and there is a danger, perhaps, uh, Jim, that this might happen. Because if I recall from last summer when the courses reopened, there was a stampede of golfers uh, to their courses playing at every hour of the day and night. (laughs) Do you fear that that might happen? And is that going to hamper the work of your uh, green keepers and green staff? I wouldn't say I fear it because I welcome it in many ways. Busy golf courses, um, you know, are better uh, all around. We, we actually managed to quantify that surge last last summer. So on average across the whole of the UK, for the six months from lockdown opening until the end of October, golf courses received on average a thousand extra rounds per month. Now, if you translate that to 30 odd golfers a day, you're talking at least two more hours play. So two more hours in which the golf course is busy. So those hours would definitely be daylight hours and hours when greenkeepers would have got their work done. So our members have had to adapt and, and innovate as we as we know they do. Um, 
But I think the the more successful golf clubs are managing that uh, tee time availability um, cleverly. Um, and I do worry slightly. One one impact of the of the surge in membership over the last twelve months is that you know these poor. I always feel bad when you hear about a season ticket holder on a railway who has the privilege of commuting to London, who gets to the station and can't get on the train because it's it's already overcrowded. You think, well, hang on, I've, I've bought a ticket and I can't get on. Yeah. Um, I worry that we'll have a situation in in the summer months at times when you know there are more keen golfers and there are tea time availability, and that that will obviously take some time to sort out. And the clever thing is to manage that expectation and manage either the amount of rounds that people can play. I know a lot of clubs will go nine hole only from the end of this month when these things open, yeah. uh, because that gets more people on the golf course on a certain day, particularly if they have a two tee start availability. And I think it will have an impact on the way clubs run because a full membership list is is like a fantastic order book. You know it's there. You've got your five hundred or six hundred members. That that money's in. It's either direct debit or already paid in the bank. You can run the business really solidly. If you're relying on on day to day green fees and, and society bookings, then it can be pretty hairy when the weather turns bad. So I think they'll have to review just how much tea times are available for members and how much are available for others um, at, at this time. Uh, and I just wonder whether some clubs will actually review their income models uh, because they've lost an awful lot of social income through bars and events and so on. Um, and a lot of it is going to come down to membership and green fees, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that may just have the, the impact that we would probably be asking for for years now, which is to make sure green fees aren't devalued because the green fee model has become very cheap through the, through all sorts of reasons. Really, it's been a bit of a race to the bottom. And golf club membership is still, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not expensive for lots of clubs, but it's still a few, few hundred quid. But if you're a once a week golfer uh, and and, it, and you don't pay huge amounts in the winter, actually, it can be more expensive than paying by the round, and that needs to change. That needs to go back to being where the, the season ticket holder effectively gets a better deal. So I think we'll see green fees rise and and a bit of supply and demand there, fewer tee times, therefore more more price for that. I hope so anyway. Jim, can we now really just uh, talk about the impact on green staff uh, themselves uh, looking after a golf course or any sports facility, but particularly a golf course with maybe 18, uh, 36 holes, 27 holes or whatever, uh, and maintaining the quality uh, can be quite an onerous job. It's not quite like cutting a cricket square and keeping that maintained. Being, have you got many uh, reports of uh, mental issues that have uh, impacted on green staff just purely for the fact of of going through the motions without any end result specifically as a result of the pandemic i would say no in fact i think to a certain extent there's probably evidence of the contrary albeit i think a number of our members who were furloughed have found it very very challenging I know that I mean I've continued working throughout the last twelve months, and I wonder how I'd have been mentally if I hadn't had that opportunity. Albeit I've been locked in my kitchen for what seems like a long, long time. I know a lot of our members from talking to them were absolutely delighted that they could carry on going out in the fresh air, doing their work, and getting on with things because so many of their friends and and colleagues weren't doing. What I do think has happened over the last twelve months, um, uh, which I think is very positive, I think awareness of mental issues has increased dramatically. So I would say we're probably aware of more people who've been suffering, but I think that's not necessarily an increase in sufferers. It's an increase in, in awareness. and, and In publicity, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's generally a good thing because, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert by any means and wouldn't, wouldn't claim to be, but everybody you speak to who has experience of this says the most important thing is to, is to acknowledge the problem and talk about it. And I, and I think we're in a better place 
for that than we were before. I also think the golf industry understands it better than it did. Yeah. So I've had the chance to speak to golf club owners and golf club managers and, and, and a little bit through the media, I guess, to some golfers as well to make them aware that greenkeepers are so passionate about what they do. And this has always been the big dichotomy for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a golfer as well as someone working in the golf industry, and I've never met a greenkeeper who was less passionate about his or her golf course than a golfer was. And yet a common complaint from a golfer can be, oh, our greenkeepers are lazy, they don't care, or they look at the, look at the attention to detail, they don't care. And the, the, the truth is a long way from that. And we've got to try and bridge that gap. We've got to make sure that golfers and employers understand how personally and passionately our guys take it. Because I'm pleased to say the response from golf clubs when, when our members have sort of come forward with with stresses and strains has generally been we've had a couple of bad occasions but generally been very positive and very supportive and it's a cliche but a problem shared is a problem halved and, and actually a lot of our members have said once they finally admitted to either their colleagues or their employers that they were struggling with something it was like a weight off their shoulders and, and life got a lot easier so i'm hoping that continues and how generally has, has training uh, of, of green staff been maintained, either by the courses themselves or indeed through uh, your association? We we pivoted pretty quickly and um, and went to sort of online training webinars. We did about 40 webinars during 2020. We, we did a, a national conference in the autumn. We did our Continue to Learn conference in January. And, and, um, and so I would say as a, as a company, we probably delivered more education directly than if we hadn't been, if we'd been doing things physically. A bit of a concern, the apprenticeship scheme sort of st- stopped and started a little bit, mainly around the, the endpoint assessment part of that. That's that's peculiar to England, but you know, not every training provider was able to, to you know, keep up their provision, particularly during lockdowns, um, albeit I think the majority of adopted uh, online solutions one way or another. I think, again, there's been probably a, a, a heightening of awareness of availability of training because especially people that were furloughed, one of the keys of furlough was your training was still allowed. So we've seen some uptake in our numbers of, of members engaging in our CPD activities. The numbers on our web on our webinars and, 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 and watching later on video have been really, really encouraging. One of, the, uh, one of the stats that I took out of the most recent survey that I saw you, you did, that uh, 40% of the respondents... Um, expected the pandemic to change the way they maintain their course forever. And I wonder what you took out of that. What was interesting, so various key key messages. First of all, a fair amount of less is more. So the, the thing we heard so much back in probably April last year was just how beautifully golf courses flourished when they were left alone. So just the improvement on, particularly on on on, on putting greens and, and then and then high air areas like pathways and things. Just just having that break was fantastic for it, and I think we'll see a lot of golf clubs if they can introduce sort of natural breaks where they possibly can. Maybe even look at restricting amounts of play in winter months or whatever it may be. Uh, I think we'll certainly see even more clubs now go with definite sort of windows of opportunity to do serious work on the golf course rather than everybody having to try and fit in around. I think we've also seen that when you really when when we went back back in sort of March April last year when we had to restrict the amount of maintenance done which we we felt was the appropriate thing to where the government regulations were we called it the essential maintenance guidelines and one of my colleagues recently unearthed the fact that the last time there were essential maintenance guidelines was during World War Two so an interesting <laughs> comparison when uh, maintenance decreased again it, it didn't have that 
impact that some of our members expected. And actually, I think we'll see more areas naturalised. That's the modern term. Yes, of that's course. Great, that's great news for the environment, generally. Great news for biodiversity and habitat creation. But but golfers have come back and recognised that perhaps the whole thing doesn't need to be wall-to-wall manicured to, to be an enjoyable game of golf. So I think there's areas in that respect. I also think that uh, some of the measures people brought in into how they ran their teams in the pandemic with reducing contact, reducing the amount of team meetings, reducing, changing the way that the whole maintenance facility was used. I think a lot of that will stick because it's become very, very efficient. I hope we get back to team meetings because it's, it's part, you know, otherwise greenkeeping is quite a lonely pursuit if you're out on your own machine or your own job all the time. But I think, I think teams will be more efficient on the back of this as well. And and so if we look at the impact on Bigger itself as an an association representing uh, your members, um, how do you think that Bigger has performed during the last 12 months? What's been your your most useful uh, service that you've been able to provide for members? I'm really proud of how the association and and importantly its members have performed. And I've said this a number of times, and apologies if any of your listeners have heard this from me already. But the first few weeks was very hairy. We were all terrified for different reasons. I had a very ill father at the time and was terrified this was going to take him before his time. People were scared for their jobs and for their businesses, etc. So fear breeds anger, and I sound like a Jedi now, but you know, uh, anger brings hatred and all this sort of stuff. There was a lot of high emotion in the early stages. So for the first few weeks. We were an essential service to our members to try and look after people and, and, and guide them through. For that early sort of quarter of the of the pandemic year, uh, Bigger really stepped up to the mark, um, particularly in its engagement with the rest of the industry. I felt we led the way, along with one or two other organisations, in, in, in providing a, a coherent strategy for the game to deal with the pandemic. And not every organisation was as quick to the mark, and I'm really proud of how agile we were in doing that. We work closely with Parliament, so with the all-party parliamentary group, and I have to pay tribute to that group. You know, my politics will remain personal, but I'm, I'm not always the biggest fan of, of everything our, our government does, but this parliamentary group has been, has been exceptional in helping us get the right information into and out of government. What really happened in the early stages was organisations put their egos to the side and said, what's right for the sport and what's right for our members? And... Um, and I think we put our members first all the way through this. We, we focused on safety, first, second and last. Um, we, we, we made sure that golf clubs were focused on keeping their greenkeepers safe, more than worried about whether turf you know, was going to suffer because we knew that the turf would come back. But this is a pretty deadly disease. And then as an organisation, and, and you know, I, I, I do two things. I run an association but for the members, but equally, you've got to run a business to make that work. The team of, of staff that we had were, were fantastic. Some of those were put on the bench when we furloughed back in April, May, and they did so with dignity and, 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 and cooperation. We went through a restructure back in the summer, and sadly we lost, um, in the end, four members of our team left the business. The main the main catalyst for that, no BTME um, in January just gone, had a fairly major impact on our overall uh, finances, but also on the amount of work that we as a team had to do. B- BTME is a huge event and it takes people's time sort of all year round. So without an event this year, we didn't need the same team and or we couldn't furlough one or two of those as because the other parts of their job weren't, weren't really going to be long lasting either. But my team has stepped up um, and worked incredibly hard. And I was just on a, a, a parliamentary call this morning. Uh, it's fascinating. I now, I now get the chance probably once every fortnight to, to talk to the whole golf industry in terms of all the leading organisations are there and the government and make sure that the course conditioning is part of the conversation. A really small example, but the government just in the budget just gone have announced the, the, the changes to red diesel uh, legislation. When, when the consultation document came out, 
golf courses and sports turf operators were going to be um, unable to to use red diesel. Uh, we did a survey. We found out how much that would cost golf courses, what it would mean in terms of passing on to consumer. Through the party, uh, the all party group, we represented to government. They changed their mind, and and yeah. happily in the budget, it says that. In fact, they've extended it now to all amateur sports clubs. So it's going to go out. I think it's going even wider because of the work we're able to do. So very proud. Yeah. And, and do you think, Jim, that that your relationship now, as a result of the contact you've had with other relevant bodies, uh, will be better in the in the future because of what you've been through together? Shall I say? Yeah, definitely. We're working on a project at the moment with a couple of other organisations to to manage golfer expectation for when when the golf course in England open in a few weeks' time. I'm conscious that some of your audience will be in Scotland where courses are open and in, and in, in Wales and Northern Ireland they don't even know when they're going to open yet, which is which is a real shame. But we're working with the golf club managers, we're working with the golf course owners and with the all-party parliamentary group to try and Get a get a consistent message out that that not every golf course will be in perfect condition come the end of March, and there's good reasons for that, and we need to manage expectations. Yeah, the relationships. I think I already had pretty strong relationships across the industry, but there's now much more of a common purpose and a recognition that we all have a part to play. Yeah, I mean, there's often uh, queries about whether people need to join a trade association, but I guess that the the events of the last few months and a year or so ha- have really brought into focus. Uh, the value of a trade association. Are you finding that from your members? I believe so, yeah. I mean, I, 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 uh, I don't think we're specifically a trade association. I know what you mean. Um, and we're, we're an individual members association. So we're, we're an employee's well, I stand association. stand corrected. I'll, I'll, and and yeah. I don't mean to, to, to be uh, to nitpick, but I think the two no, are no, slightly you're quite right. And, and yes, absolutely. And I, and I think I'd, I'd say the same for the PGA in our industry and the Golf Club Managers Association. We all have individual... Um, issues as a group of employees or, or servants to the game and I know and, I, and I'm pleased to say that our members are a good bunch and, and I got lots of really nice emails and, and comments and texts and what have you during the summer last year to say that they're really proud of, of what the association had done for them I'm also really proud our membership numbers have held up so we're down on last year but we're not not anywhere near as far down as I actually budgeted for us to be I thought we'd be worse than we were I thought we'd lose more members from from the actual industry um, and I thought we'd lose more from membership for either financial reasons or, or, or lack of engagement, bearing in mind that one of the reasons people join Bigger is to get involved in things we do and we haven't been able to do very much. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I, I imagine the same is, is true of the, of the various trade associations as well in the industry that we face because you need that common voice sometimes. An individual greenkeeper can't speak to government. I'm very fortunate that I can on their behalf. So it's been it's been really valuable. And, and do you think uh, that you as an association, Bigger, will change permanently as, as a result of COVID in, in any areas of your work? I would say that if we don't, we're doomed. I would say the same about every business. In fact, we've just been spending some time as a board and staff recently discussing what that actually means. So we've already changed in terms of uh, staff structure and some of our activity, but we're looking now closely at what our overall goals are and our overall vision and, and how we deliver on those. Because I, I think any business that comes out of this life-changing experience of the last 12 months and thinks it's going to be back to how things were is likely to fall behind. So I'll be disappointed if I'm sitting here talking to you in 12 months, Chris, and nothing did change because I should be out of a job by then. <laughs> um, I think it will change for the better. I think we'll communicate better. I think that's one thing we will definitely do. We we used, probably used to rely on our magazine and, and the odd newsletter. We were a bit old-fashioned in that respect. Our, our, our audience is, is, you could possibly uh, depict as being a sort of an old-fashioned, you know, land-based industry. We're, we're much better now not as good as we need to be but we're much better at communicating we're much better at working together with others and we're much more nimble i think we've probably also had a really good reminder of why we exist which is i i am as, as guilty as anybody of getting 
hooked on BTME planning or, or you know, big sponsorship deals or whatever it might be in financial planning. And to be reminded that in the end, there are, you know, there are 6,000 Greenkeeper members out there, members are bigger. There are probably 12,000 Greenkeepers in the country who need our help and support has been quite a good wake up call or reminder, not a wake up call. I think we were awake, but a reminder that, that that's why we go to work. Uh, and as ever, it's all about the people, really, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, uh, sort of lastly, we're uh, we're 10 months out yet, but um, BTME, I guess, uh, uh, for January in 2022, uh, what are your early expectations or hope for that event? Well, first of all, we've we've had uh, strong assurances that uh, by January 2022, the Harrogate Centre won't be a Nightingale Hospital because it still is today. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, they still haven't had a COVID patient, but they are using it for, for some cancer treatments and various things. And we're, we're proud that our spiritual home has had that, that little part to play. We think that the uh, that the experience of being a hospital actually will leave the convention centre in in better shape because they'll make some changes because of it. So that's a good that's a good bit of news. We are planning uh, full throttle to run um, as normal a BTME as we can next year, and that's deliberate where, because I, I'm, I'm conscious I don't want to go against what I just said. I, I want people to come to Harrogate next January and it feel comfortable and familiar, and it be something that they that they, that they longed for for two long years. On top of that, however, I think we will we will adopt some online options. I think we will stream our education to those that can't attend. Uh, we're considering having an option for exhibitors to have an online presence as well as a physical presence for those that can't attend. Uh, I think that might even help one or two of our down periods because we, we know that our third day in BTME is usually quiet and that might be a great day to appeal, for example, to the international audience and say, use us as an online exhibition for that day. So I think we'll make some changes on that. But I, I genuinely hope I can walk into a packed pub on the Tuesday night and be amazed at just how many green keepers are still talking about grass at 10 o'clock at night um, <laughs> in a, in a, in a tavern in Harrogate. That'll be, that'll be great news. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure you encourage uh, your visitors to come and look and learn, but at the end of the day, I guess you will also be hoping that the bars and hostelries of, of Harrogate are absolutely packed with, uh, with people socializing in a way that we've, we've really missed over the last uh, few, few, few months and so on. Look, Jim, thank you ever so much for that very, uh, very fulsome run through of, of, of the work of bigger and your greenkeeping and green staff community. It's been most interesting. So might I wish you well uh, in the run up to the festival of turf. I hope it's a, a success and uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody in the trade looks forward greatly to um, coming along and having a look. See, well, thank you, Chris. It's been my pleasure to, to chat to you and uh, thank you for your support and opportunity to talk about what it is we do. I know it's a, it's a small part of your audience, but you're important to us. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Well, that was excellent. And there were so many issues covered during that fascinating chat with Jim Croxton. One point that came across very strongly was that golf clubs will need to manage their most valuable resource, the course itself, very carefully over the coming months and years. Jim talked about the dangers of overplaying and that their income models might have to be reviewed. So a reminder that the bigger festival of turf will now take place on the 21st and 22nd of July. And you can get full details from their website www.biggerbigga.org.uk. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside AgriTurf.